Hi everyone, it's Roger here from the What's On Disney Plus podcast, and today you'll notice it's a little bit different. We've got some special guests. Um, Josh is going to be leading us through um, a lot of discussions about Star Wars as a special episode. So yeah, so let's jump into it. Josh, do you want to take it away? Yes, Roger. Thanks so much. Well, we do have two special guests with us. I've uh, gotten to do some co-hosting here a few times, but uh, you know, Star Wars, my goodness, it's the biggest franchise that they have on Disney Plus, and so uh, Mandalorian has been a hit with every season. And so here we want to kind of set up Obi-Wan Kenobi, very significant series, Ewan McGregor coming back to his role uh, from the prequel trilogy. So uh, everyone is excited about that. And you, uh, if you haven't seen, though, The Book of Boba Fett and you haven't seen The Bad Batch, two other recent Star Wars stories, we want to get into that a little bit. Those series uh, maybe give you perhaps some homework if you haven't uh, gotten to see those shows yet. But give, you some, give some opinion. These are two guys who know Star Wars extremely well. Um, and uh, are going to give us some great insights. So I will just say Aaron Welty is a, actually a speaker back in the day at Star Wars Celebration at one of the conferences. He's written extensively on Star Wars. So Aaron, thrilled to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, Aaron kind of like lives, eats, breathes Star Wars. So you're going to get that sense in, in, you know, in somebody who's read most of the novels, read a lot of the comics, you know, knows knows this, this saga and the lore and the legends so well. So, and then... Uh, Gabriel, also a huge Star Wars fan, I know, uh, and you might be on mute, Gabriel, but uh, you know we're thrilled to have you as well. He's a historian also, a graduate of Kennesaw State University, and has a lot of expertise on uh, issues of history, race, ethnicity, et cetera, but also just loves, I know, this whole world of Star Wars. Am I, am I right, Gabriel? Yep, very much so. <laughs> so tremendous. Well, I, to start us out with a relevant question, which is, you know, the Obi-Wan Kenobi trailer just came out uh, a few days ago. Everyone's talking about it. Um, each of you, uh, maybe Aaron, if you want to start us out, um, what stood out to you uh, in the Obi-Wan Kenobi trailer? Well, in terms of talking about what we would consider to be connective tissue, um, we see a lot of things in the Kenobi trailer that we've seen in other places, namely, I mean, obviously, Obi-Wan, um, Tatooine, and that connects to uh, Book of Boba Fett, but also uh, the Inquisitors. Yeah, that's that's going to be significant, I think, and we want to get into that deeply. Um, Gabriel, uh, things that you stood out to, uh, for me, like the the Duel of the Fates music cue and all that. Like I felt like I was right back in, you know, the prequel trilogy again uh, with some of that music. So I feel like they're definitely trying to to take us back to that era. But uh, stuff that you saw in that that was really uh, interesting or yeah, I think for me, the thing that made it really interesting was them um, really trying to go back into what the expanded universe for Star Wars used to be. Um, growing up in the 90s with the extended unit with the expanded universe with uh, Prince Sixor and Black Sun. And of course, what happened in the rise of the Empire with the different figures. I think it's amazing they're trying to reshape those conversations that happened for this time frame. And take things a step further before as george lucas said with the original uh trilogy uh with the prequels he tried to make clear his view how to how a democracy becomes a dictatorship and in this one i think it's amazing they're going back in the trail in the, in the in the trailers to show just how bad things got under the empire and how people survived for 50 plus years before the rebellion even started so and Aaron, feel free to jump in if you want there. But I, that's, that's something I, I, I saw an interview with some of the producers of this. And they, they made a big deal out of the fact that, oh, you know, we're, we're exploring that era where, with the rise of the empire and that, 
you know, it's a really fascinating time of, you know, when you see that transition from the Republic to the Empire. And, and I just thought, you know, like, yes, it's that is a fascinating and original idea. But, it, you know, have you been watching The Bad Batch? Have you been watching, right. <laughs> you know, The Clone Wars over several years? Like, they definitely have been building towards that in a lot of the symbolism and a lot of the small little subtle changes you see. Um, thoughts on that? And you, well, you certainly see the beginning of that with the Bad Batch, right? Like the 70 minute pilot for Bad Batch drops you right in the middle of what's happening in Revenge of the Sith. And you see some of the crossover between Order 66. And also you see the um, Palpatine speech to the Senate, you know, the safe and secure society speech from the uh, perspective of the clones on Kamino. And so you see the beginnings of that you know, some of the same things that we saw a little bit of crossover in the final season of Clone Wars. And then Bad Batch very quickly shifts into here is how the galaxy is changing under the Empire. There's a really early episode where they say, well, okay, they're, they're, they're tagging ships now, but they're also tagging people. Like you see the, the chain code idea pop up, which we also see in other places in some of the new media. So you're definitely seeing how they are very quickly moving from the kind of the Republic Clone Wars era towards the Empire, even to where by the time you get to the end of the first season of The Bad Batch, they've transitioned from clones to TK Troopers. And I know we can get into some of that later, but you're definitely seeing that happen very, very quickly. The only thing I want to pop in is like this is the thing. I think this problem is like for us that we've all seen the Clone Wars and Bad Batch and Rebels. We're all all gonna, you know, we know what's going on. But I think for so many people, if it's not live action, they, it doesn't exist. So therefore, this is why they need to go back and like retell it because yep. essentially, like my dad, if it's an animated, he loves Star Wars and he goes to cinema and you know, watch waiting for the new episode. But it's a second, it's a cartoon. He's gone. That's that's the end of it. He wouldn't even wouldn't even remotely. And I think there's so many people like that that just won't. So they basically can retell all the stories from those TV shows. Well, and that discourages me a little bit. I, uh, Gabriel, I know you've got a comment here. You you went on mute, um, so I want. Sorry. Right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, like what I, I kind of agree with that um, regarding uh, the, the levels, the spectrum of fandom. You know, I, even though I grew up loving the cinematographic universe, um, I also kept up with the comic books and the cartoons as well. So for me, um, I'll check out every aspect of what you see with the Star Wars universe. But I know that many would just watch the cinematographic. Um, movies and the cinematographic universe is a whole different dynamic when they bring in the lore on mm -hmm. the live mm -hmm. even with Bad Batch um, I was that they broke that down with that series to show how loyal clone troopers suddenly switched and many had to go against they were forced against their will because of that little Order 6 program and that little biochip but that was never broken down the cinematographic universe so many thought okay, is there any morality? Like, did they just betray the Jedi and that was it? How does this mm. happen? And you would have to be really dedicated to keep up with the comic books. So I feel they're trying to make this a lot more easy for people who are just visually oriented toward, you know, live action film, you know? Yeah, I, I don't, I think it's a mistake for sure if folks are not engaging with the Clone Wars and engaging with Rebels. And so I would just go search out a top 10 list of Clone Wars episodes, get through that, see what you think. And I think you're going to want to maybe start at the beginning and, and certainly go through some of the key storylines that were developed there because they're just so integral to what's going to happen mm -hmm. on The Mandalorian and where we're going forward. I mean, I think I just can't I think you're already going to be confused 
uh, if you're not uh, engaging with those to a degree. So, so try, but um, yeah, Josh, I, do wanna, I would go, I would go one level deeper really quick on that in that if you want to understand things like Boba Fett and the Mandalorian and how they are structured as a story, since individuals like Dave Filoni are so integral to what's happening in the live action space on Disney Plus, if you want to get a sense of how he likes to tell stories, you have to engage with Clone Wars and Rebels because that's where he cut his teeth on Star Wars storytelling. Really well said. Well, and let's, that's a great intro to what where I want to go because let's circle back to Obi-Wan at the end and some of the things we might have in terms of expectations and what we're seeing in that. But uh, we do want to stay on Tatooine though because that's where Star Wars has been staying and, and go to with the Book of Boba Fett. Um, and I, I think there are several reasons it, it fell short maybe of what many fans wanted. Um, and I'd, I'd love your thoughts on this, Aaron. Honestly, I've wanted to have this conversation just with you privately mm -hmm. or whatever because I just, I didn't quite get his motivations entirely, even though I, like I say, I know to a degree some of Clone Wars and, and Rebels, but you know, I felt like in the original trilogy, he was a very self-driven bounty hunter. And now he presents himself as kind of this benevolent daimyo who mostly rejects violence. Um, I know we got hours of, of backstory in the back to tank, you know, that that, that was mm -hmm. developed and, and that there we kind of saw some of that journey, but I just didn't fully connect with it in those first four episodes, particularly. Um, what 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 am I missing? So I had to watch the show a couple of times, but the thing that I kept coming back to is particularly in the original trilogy, and then you know. Gabriel had, had talked a little bit about the 90s EU that we grew up with. Boba Fett was always a foil, an antagonist, sometimes an enemy, but not always, a foil and antagonist to Han Solo. And Han Solo's journey as a character, right, his hero's journey was one where, especially when you consider what happens in the Solo film, was a journey where he goes from kind of a solo, lonely, lone wolf nature to being accepted, accepted into community, wanting community and this whole idea, you know, the, the trope that we're all familiar with of found family in Chewbacca, in Luke Skywalker, in Leia, and all of those characters and how they kind of build they build out a community, they build out a family, they build out the Skywalker clan, and you essentially see Boba Fett going through something similar where we've known him as this kind of this loner, this hunter that gets to a point where he, he goes through something and realizes that didn't work for me. I need something that works. And it's largely his uh, experience kind of in the flashbacks, you know, kind of those lost-esque flashbacks with the Tuscan Raiders that sets him up to be more of a community-oriented character. That's great. And Eric, Gabriel, go for it. I, you're on mute. Oh, you're on mute again. Got it. My apologies. I would add to this as well that, um, for those who know what happened in the extended universe, Bubba didn't just remain in the role of a bounty hunter. At one point, Bubba became the leader of the Mandalorians, or at least a faction, when uh, the original universe 
uh, took the whole Star Wars theme and had the Republic and all the older um, powers fight against another invading system, right? So um, it was a big deal to see Boba Fett become a more heroic character. Um, and so when I watched the live action series, it didn't shock me to see Boba Fett evolve to become a heroic figure who didn't just want to be a bounty hunter. That doesn't mean that he got rid of his bounty hunter background. He was still in some ways amoral if it came to him getting his job done and having his own code. But him becoming um, more noble is not something that's outside of his character. Unfortunately, many don't know that history. So they saw Boba Fett trying to not just be a bounty hunter working for others and thought, well, that's not Boba Fett. To me, I was like, that is Boba Fett. He had the right to evolve because he was a Mandalorian first and foremost. He was forced into that lifestyle with a bounty hunting um, background because of the empire where you had to do what you had to do to survive. And uh, with Bubba's background as well, um, Bubba Fett was actually well revered in the original extended universe when it came to multiple groups who he helped out. Some he begrudgingly helped out, but others he came through because he recognized their right to live. So him helping out the indigenous of Tatooine, a Tatooine was a really big deal. It showed that he wasn't just a gun for hire. He actually had a conscience and he respected the life of people on the planets that he hit out on. He wasn't just for himself. See, for me, I looked at it's like looking at it less so from like the, the extended story. To me, it was like this was not the Boba Fett that I knew. You know, obviously we've seen him in you know the original in Return of the Jedi and, and you know I had the action figure in the slave one as a kid and you know like and you know he was this mysterious thing and this was just like literally was like this could have been any other character this could have been somebody brand new it didn't it didn't have that connection to Boba Fett in the same way like oh yeah so he's obsessed with the Sarlacc pit that was basically the only real connection that you know for I think the most like casual fans had to Boba Fett of like he's not even the same character then that was I feel like that was the big disconnect with the casual audience was this is not the guy you will you thought you were watching you know he wasn't Boba Fett but I, I hear what you guys are saying because I was in the same place uh, Roger and I think what Aaron and Gabriel are developing a little bit is this that idea of community and maybe that connection with Finnick Chand uh, is is almost maybe a um, you know a Chewbacca type uh, character there where he finally had that relationship with with someone uh, it seemed like of trust and actual mutual understanding but then um, you know the journey he, they took us on and uh, regarding the the Tuscan Raiders who are in a sense you mentioned uh, or maybe I'm, is it the Sand People or the Tuscan Raiders am I right is it the Tuscans um, who are yeah who are presented mm-hmm. in the show as this indigenous people on Tatooine, uh, and maybe who've, you know, perhaps been relegated uh, to a certain assumptions, you know, face some prejudices from different groups, et cetera. Um, you know, it's interesting how science fiction is always, you know, commenting on current issues, contemporary mm-hmm. issues, you know. Uh, Gabriel, this is an area I know of study for you and, uh, and expertise in terms of, uh, you know, some of the, the these issues of indigenous peoples. And I, I saw people view what, Boba Fett's character did in those early episodes, you know, where he's kind of coming in as a hero type figure to this indigenous people. Some people saw kind of a, a white savior type narrative there that they objected to. Um, how did you see that story and, and how it unfolded? And even understanding, I guess, that the actor's own background. Yeah, um, with I believe uh, he's Pacific Islander, if I'm not mistaken, and um, uh, him bringing in his indigenous perspective was really critical. I don't think too many people, if they're not intentional, would catch that. Um, 
because he has been in other films. He was also, for example, in the movie Aquaman as Aquaman's father. It was an intentional uh, choice on the actor's part and uh, um, uh, the, the actor who played Aquaman to keep his indigenous heritage in place as opposed to whitening it up so it would be a white savior complex. Those who are unfamiliar were quick to say that's a white savior. They didn't realize, no, this is an indigenous person portraying what it would be like to be an indigenous hero relating to indigenous peoples. Does that make sense what you said? Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, uh, so Tamira Morrison, right, is the is the actor here as well as uh, Jason Momoa you're referring to as on. Yeah, so. yeah, Jason Momoa. And, and that's why when I saw the buffet, I, again, my background, for those who don't know, is an Afro-Indigenous background. Uh, my ancestors are Cromanti, Maroons, and also um, Black Seminoles. Um, and for me, it's a big deal to keep in mind what happened historically when people um, came through to help out the tribes. White saberism will be specifically people coming through, assuming that no one else could come save the day but white people. But what's not talked about historically are the experiences of people who themselves were minorities, black and brown peoples um, who came through and they assist the tribes. That story gets minimized. So when I saw Bubba Fett in action, and again, knowing the extended universe's history with him becoming a noble hero who led Mandalorians mm -hmm. in their um, in their mercenary lifestyle and indigenous lifestyle, it didn't shock me. But I want to say this real clearly. Um, I know how I grew up as a fan who was black and indigenous as a Star Wars fan. That's not the same experience I saw with a lot of fans who grew up liking Star Wars, but they themselves did not have that kind of connection. If I brought this stuff up, it would say, well, that's just that's just trying to bring stuff in that's not really about the Star Wars story. I said, you don't know the Star Wars story, clearly, <laughs> because we can talk about uh, the Yukasan uh, Vong. Yeah, that Vong. Invaded. We can talk about Mara Jade. We can talk about what happened with uh, um, Jason Solo and several others that fell to the dark side and had to evolve. That was in the lore. So as a true fan, I'm going to ask people, do we know what the lore actually says and why it spoke to indigenous peoples that Bubba Fett actually came through? Or are we bringing our own biases into the mix? Because that's why they did what they did. They had to show the Tusken Raiders were demonized on, on the planet, and they want to expand it to show that Bubba Fett being misunderstood himself could relate to them because they took him in when no one else would with the Sarlacc. Even in the comics, Bubba Fett did not just, he got himself out of the Sarlacc, but he got assistance from several other groups in the comic lore um, before he got back on his feet. And he didn't like Han Solo. He's had a lot of competition with Han Solo, but he still had to establish himself and got help along the way from other species that were oppressed by the Empire. And with the Tusken Raiders, I thought they brought that demon because in the empire it wasn't just them attacking other planets and um, the rebellion itself there were multiple indigenous groups that were being overlooked and that was a part of the lore even um what's his name general grievous's people general grievous's background mm. was that he did not like the jedi or the empire he did not the jedi or the republic because he came from an indigenous people but he was betrayed sabotaged by the confederacy and they lied and said the Republic did this to him, but he came from a tribal people. So that lore is very well established um, in the Star Wars universe. One of the things that I often try to share with people, particularly as it relates to Star Wars, is you have to let Star Wars interpret Star Wars. If you don't do it that way, then there are a lot of things you're gonna miss, like Gabriel was saying. But as it relates to Boba Fett, when you also look at his experience from episode two 
to say the end of the Clone Wars. It's a situation where even in that space, even with the bounty hunters that he connects with, like Aura Singh and Bosk and others, he's still trying to create some sort of family atmosphere, some family space, because the 10 years or so that he existed as a unaltered clone with his father around, that's what he knew. And the moment his father was killed at the beginning of the Battle of Geonosis by Mace Windu, everything changes for him. And the rest of his life, especially in the, the Disney canon, is him trying to get that back and trying to essentially resurrect the kind of relationship he had with his dad, but with other people. And the other influence that I think is at play here with Boba Fett is one that doesn't get talked about as much. And that is the Godfather. There's a lot of um, the Godfather in Boba Fett's story, particularly in um, Book of Boba Fett, where he essentially, in becoming the daimyo of Tatooine, becomes the Godfather. And I know that that uh, Josh talked a little bit about there being that connection between him and Fennec Shan, kind of like Han, Han Solo and Chewie. But I wonder if it's more um, the Godfather and Tom Hagen, uh, his conciliary from the original Godfather movies. It's a good insight. Good insight. And he, um, I think what I hear you guys saying too, is it's this role of, in a sense, a bridge builder as a hero. It's a, it's a different, almost sort of a hero when you talk about him bridging the gap between various groups that have had these divides and him coming into it. Um, there's one, there's one other thing I want to say real quick to that, um, with that Godfather theme. I love the fact that they show that that little planet that people thought was a backwater planet had a lot of politics going on because as much as people talk about the empire and the rise of the empire, people forget that the empire was not the pr primary power in the star Wars universe. There are multiple criminal organizations. Again, Black Sun has been mentioned in several of the recent Star Wars movies, like on so uh, Solo movie with Ben with um, his background growing up. But in the in the original story, Black Sun was the third greatest power in the in the in the in the in the, um, in, the in the galaxy. Even the Emperor utilized criminal organizations like Black Sun and Jabba the Hutt's people. And Vader had competition with criminal empires. So I love that after the Empire fell. They took it there and showed that Bubba still had the underworld current to face. You know, it wasn't just him trying to uh, do be a good Samaritan. He was still he, he was still a criminal. He still understood how criminals operated in that era. And so they showed that that underworld has a has that has an ecology, has a social ecology, and this is what it looks like when criminal warlords no longer have an empire looking over them. They're still fighting for power on their little turf of land, and um. I think that's why I like how Bubba still stayed true to his character in the context of what happened. And even, even the Hutt syndicate, right, that Jabba was a part of, you, you see it laid out in Clone Wars how there's the, there's the Hutt Council, there's the multiple families, just like it's set up in um, you know, the Godfather films and what happens at the end of the first Godfather film when a lot of the other ones are, are wiped out much like Anakin wiping out the separatist council um, in episode three and how that's intercut with 
Sidious's uh, safe and secure society speech, just like the christening that uh, Michael Corleone goes to is intercut with the deaths of the heads of the five families in the original Godfather, largely because Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola were buddies and Coppola helped Star Wars get made. And they had a ongoing relationship that went all the way back to going to USC film school together. That's, that's remarkable. I love it. You know, something as well, just not to be negative on the series, especially those first four episodes, but I, I did think, you know, from a technical level, story level to a degree, but particularly maybe sometimes on a technical level, that there was something that felt a little bit off. Um, I don't know, you know, I know that Robert Rodriguez was really the director and kind of calling the shots. Obviously, uh, Filoni and Favreau were there in the background as executive producers, but to me, like, I don't know that those first four episodes particularly were as good at utilizing what they call the volume, you know, that mm -hmm. contains set when it comes to me to lighting and blocking. Like, I look at those and I often was very keenly aware that this is a contained set, that it didn't feel expansive. I didn't feel like this was, you know, uh, the dunes of sand dunes in the background, that it was like, no, that's 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 green screen. So I don't know. Would you want to comment on that in terms of just technically were they not there in terms of some of those early episodes? I think for me, I feel like those first few episodes you just felt so disconnected. The whole kind of jumping in and out between the sort of the flashbacks and the forward was just like, why are we spending so much time here? But like you said, the it didn't feel very like big. I mean, I don't know if it didn't help them maybe picking like the two slowest types of for, of transport with you know the, the Banffers or you had those horrible speeders which just looked like they were plodding along on they were just there didn't seem to be any they said there was no scale because they were inside the volume it didn't feel like they were in a desert um you know they didn't feel like that at all Roger I wonder if um in terms of, of scope you know, you, you look at two seasons of The Mandalorian and how much storytelling happened in that space and where we started and where we got to. I wonder if Book of Boba Fett was supposed to be a smaller story on purpose. It kind of, in some ways, it's like, you, it, I, I would have preferred it had they just done, they would have been like a much smaller season and just kind of, in some ways, like forgot, didn't bother doing the whole backstory with the Tuscan Raider because it just didn't seem to... It, everyone was just like, well, where's this going? It's got nothing to... Whereas the actual story with like the Mandalorian and when we had all the um, them all coming together to take out the, the Spice Runners, it's like, well, it didn't have... It didn't seem to then have any impact because at first we we're thinking, oh, well, we're going to have the Tuscan Raiders all coming in and like helping out. And, like, Well, no, they all got wiped out. I mean, just like, a little comment about from the Spice... People thought, oh, yeah, we kind of tricked you into kind of... It was like, well, there was a lot of time spent kind of building that, and it didn't really come to anything. Gabriel, yeah, go ahead. You're, you're on mute. I, I think for me personally, what I got from it was, I mean, again, it's just my... What I took from the show, I was immersed in the show because I was thankful for them expanding on the lure of the Tuscan Raiders and how there were different people from multiple groups uh, multiple species that were united in this united in this one warrior culture and the mandalorian kind of built on that of course um and again as a comic buff i was thankful that they actually kept consistent but i think for me what threw me off story-wise was um all credit to the actor i think what threw me off story-wise was that it felt kind of slow that's what got me there are points where i thought 
y'all are talking a bit too slow for this much intensity. You got Spice Raiders that just wiped out the tribe that adopted you. A multiracial, multinational tribe. I'm gonna need to see some anger and not just contemplation. Um, like you're in some kind of um transcendental or you know, um, some kind of like you know, um moment where you're processing the mysteries of the universe. And there were times we were in the acting, I was like, what's the what's what's this what's this what was this um the the fellow bounty hunter that helped him out? The uh girl yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't dig it. I, at times I was like you, uh, no, you are not really reciting your you're reciting your lines, but you should look a little I thought she should look a little bit more fierce with her lines, the looking kind of retained, kind of self-controlled and calm, because I just thought it was way too much for me. I kind of got the feel that it was on another planet personally, because it's a cinematographic universe. Um could I have been looking for whether we're in the Sahara Desert or somewhere in Colorado? Yeah, but I kind of already got that kind of vibe watching um, uh, the Mandalorian episodes with uh, <laughs> the uh, sandworms. I felt they were trying to rush some things with this, and so they kept it very localized. It was very much centered on one group at a time. So with the Tuscan Raiders, all you saw was that campfire and them practicing fighting. You didn't really see the environment they lived on outside of their raid on that train. So I think they took their time with it to keep it localized before gradually expanding things in later episodes to show everything on the planet. That was my vibe. We did get to see Tashi Station, though. And we've never gotten to see Tashi Station before, at least not on screen. <laughs> Also, what got me was the whole thing with like the, the the kind of the big thing of the train attacking the train. It was a bit like you, you know you're in space and we got spaceships and like we'd already kind of done the train robbery thing in Solo. It was a little bit like well, I, it was it was there was it was so many times you kind of think why are they meeting people in the middle of the desert when they got spaceships? They can go anywhere. They could go up, just park up in space, and have a meeting, or off into the you know the polar caps and sort of just outside the city. Or just, so, you know, just within, and I think for me there were so many different elements of going. This just it, it felt so small in a massive universe where they got access to the entire space and you know, to every. It just that was my little issue with that one. I mean, in the whole battle scene too with the, uh, my goodness, how did I forget the name? What's uh, uh, what's Jabba's pet? The, the Rancor. The Rancor? I thought the Rancor was cool, but at points I was like, this is kind of Superman-ish. With, again, my, one of my biggest critiques was I love Mando, but this felt like it was a Mando TV show at points. I was like, why is Boba Fett a guest star in his own TV show? I dig Mando, but we have the Mandalorian for his storyline, and uh, that took away from the epicness of keeping things centralized. Uh, if I had to, if I had to go in my geek mode, um, think of it like this: Deep Space Nine versus Star Trek: The Next Better, Next Generation. Next Generation was focused on exploration. Mm -hmm. Deep Space Nine was focused on that space station. It's the difference between the Oregon Trail and the Wild West. <laughs> Two different storylines, but one is focused on travel and the other one's focused on gunslinging. And so with the gunslinging dynamic, you have to keep things very central in one spot. And I felt they tried to get that in the end, but they lost a lot along the way. Um, it took more time to explain things than they had. Um, like why, did, why did it matter with the Spice Raiders? Why did it matter with the Pikes? Um, they could have extended the episodes to give more background so it felt more personal. Personal. 
Gabriel, that DS9 analogy was awesome. <laughs> I love DS9. So yeah, me too. I know, yeah. <laughs> my dad used to be my captain. I love I love them all, but it was the most deep Star Trek, but that's a whole different topic. Well, that, yeah. that's it's certainly been the well, that, that's it, it, it has been what you're mentioning there, Gabriel, the dominant narrative about this show is that obviously we've been even referring to the first four episodes of, of Boba Fett because episodes five and six are episodes of the Mandalorian, you know, essentially season three. I mean, they, you know, didn't even feature Boba Fett really at all. Um, and then the finale obviously brought them all together, um, which had a lot to enjoy. But I don't know. How do you respond to that, Aaron? I guess when you hear people just talking about the, you know, just disjointed nature of the show. Um, I don't necessarily think that they're wrong. But at the same time, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how someone like Dave Filoni likes to tell stories. And there have definitely been points, particularly in watching, say, Rebels, where I think even in the final, you know, where these characters would get introduced and you'd see them for an episode or two and then you wouldn't see them for a long, 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 long time. And then everybody in like, the kind of the finale space would get brought back together. And I think about the finale for Rebels and how there were all sorts of characters that we'd seen all across the series and hadn't seen for a long time. And all of a sudden, everyone's back together as kind of one big happy family, one big team to fight, you know, the big bad threat. And I feel like there are certain ways in terms of how stories get told that for better or worse, kind of get reused and recycled. And I think this is an instance where that happens, um, particularly as it relates to say the finale of Boba Fett and yes, Mando's involved. And of course, as soon as you saw the Ranker and Danny Trejo show up partway through, it's like, okay, we're gonna see that Ranker again. We're probably gonna see Boba Fett riding it. That happened. Um, it felt very I think Gabriel had mentioned it felt kind of a little video gamey, particularly the Force Unleashed one, which is, you know, when he goes to Dothamir and, and whatnot, and you see the Rancors and you get to fight him and ride him and all of that. Um, so there's definitely places, whether it's new canon or old canon, where they seem to be pulling from all these different spaces to bring something together to kind of remix something. You know, I think, yeah, I was yep. going to say, because Go it ahead, definitely Mike. had definitely had that kind of vibe of, and then we'd already seen it in the first two seasons of The Mandalorian, where it's like, we're going to introduce six people, and we know that we're going to have this big adventure at the end where we bring them all in. And it was a bit like, okay, so we you know we, we saw it with the, like the Mando, and then we saw it with um, Black K, and we saw all these groups coming together. And you know, saying about like the Rancor, we saw it all coming a mile away going, I want to ride that. It's like, well, we know what's going to happen in the finale. I just wasn't quite expecting a King Kong episode at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you could see it coming a mile off. So you weren't surprised. I mean, I think we were saying it's a, oh, well, he's going he's gonna to ride in on a, on a Rancor in the finale. You could see it a mile away. They... They give you things they know you want to see, but they don't necessarily give them to you the way you expect to see them. I, I'll i just say I did enjoy the finale in the sense of it felt almost like a monster verse, you know, kaiju movie, Godzilla, King Kong. You know, I'm like, man, they're bringing this into Star Wars. That's a fun idea. Like, I don't know. I've just recently come to enjoy some of those newer films and, uh, 
you know, it was an interesting element. It was a different kind of a genre play uh, for Star Wars. And I, I, you know, it was a fun finale. Um, and I, I think I want to say real quickly to that point that what really made the finale big for me was that they kept true to the ethos of what it means to be a Mandalorian. Mandalorians are a warrior culture, thousands of years old, that includes people from different backgrounds. And I think that's why, even though it felt a little bit like, you know, the beaten path being taken, uh, or like another trail, I'm sorry, I, I was glad they brought in Mando's story, his people with Bubba Fett's story to show continuity, that there wasn't an entirely separate story. It was two Mandalorians, both on different adventures, honoring their warrior roots, and seeing their different struggles because Mando wasn't really from Bubba's background as a previous bounty hunter um, um, criminal. Bubba as a criminal who became a mercenary and then became a gun for hire and then became an advocate for the tribes. He related to the Tuscan warriors because his own people were multiracial people. Um, and that's where that key link was meant to bring everything into view that this is a symbol, this is a symbolism of warriors fighting on behalf of each other and a warrior culture. Um, even though they can't stop everything that happened with the fall of the empire, they could stop what happened on that small little sandy planet. So I love that Bubba came out as a dynamo and the people respecting him. He was changing things. I didn't, I didn't, that's a side. I didn't like the type, the Power Rangers dynamic with those little kids with the robot eyes. And <laughs> that was too power. I was like, this is, this is, this is um, Angel Grove. I don't need yeah. Angel Grove yeah. in Star Wars universe right now, but they did it. Um, I, I was like, cool, cool. This is they try to bring that Generation Z, but I was like, nowhere on that on that sandy planet they have uh colored bikes, neo ne neon colored bikes. That's not what they, that's the economy wasn't good enough at that point for them to have all that. But it's a different generation. Generation Z may want to see some of that to feel represented. I'm like, bring the dusty vehicles, bring the um Cadillacs that have no gas, bring the stuff that shows that this is a struggling world and crime is rampant but i'll give it some grace because they try to make it they kept it disney-ish it really felt disney at that point mm. with the power rangers kids gabriel i hear you on the 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 power rangers and the the scooters and all that i i thought that that felt out of place too but at the same time upon you know thinking about it a little more it's if i understand correctly it's a throwback to kind of 50s, 60s hot rod mod culture, which is something that Lucas grew up in so much that that's why he made American Graffiti, right? So there's a little bit of that in it, which I can appreciate in terms of kind of the history of Star Wars and the making of Star Wars and all of that. But I did feel like those, those scooters in particular felt very out of place on yeah. Tatooine. It's kind of funny because it's like for like for me, like we have a lot of groups of mod bikes on the little scooters, you know, from like the 1960s kind of. And it was like I got what they were going for in like you know the rebels and all the and the rebel side of it, but it did it was just like I think I wouldn't have minded if they looked like they went fast, but it looked like they were on little chicken bikes just chasing around. Um, compare that to like you know the speeder chases from like Return of the Jedi, which were you know there was you know this just going around the city like plodding around, and then they just every vehicle just seemed to be going so slow in this. They had no <laughs> gas in the car. I was like, if this is this is shiny vehicles, but you're going slow as heck. What is going on? Like, <laughs> match. The, that's why I felt like okay, you're not matching the atmosphere. Of the planet right now and i can handle i can handle shiny things to a point but if this is shiny zoom i need to i need to go fast um didn't and happen didn't. yeah 
I, I feel like, and I, you know, that the, the Obi Wan trailer. When I think about that in terms of atmosphere, like that is the strongest element of it right now. And I want to take us there a little bit, but before, to wrap up a little bit of this Boba Fett conversation, um, you know, it, it is just interesting. I feel like there are many episodes, maybe of Clone Wars, of Rebels, that just felt that they hit Star Wars storytelling a little bit stronger. And whereas Boba Fett probably had easily triple the budget, you know, per episode of one of those shows. Um, what what was the essential story that was told here, you feel like, in terms of what this really added to the lore and, you know, what we might be seeing maybe echoing in, in some of the things coming up? I don't know. Aaron, Gabriel, thoughts? Um, so one thing we haven't talked about that connects both, that connects Clone Wars, Bad Batch, and Boba Fett is Cad Bane. We got to see Cad Bane in live action, something I wasn't sure we would ever ever see and i think one of the strongest elements of of boba fett again not that we're on the you know non-boba fett train all the time was we got to see potentially how cad bane's story concludes right we'd seen him in clone wars he shows up at least once so far in the bad batch and that was one of the best moments of bad batch for me was getting to see him and we we get to see how much kind of not only like the, the samurai film culture, but also the, the old West 70s, you know, Sergio Leone, um, Clint Eastwood, uh, Lee Van Cleef, Angel Eyes, which is basically who Cad Bane is in Star Wars, how, the, how so much of that has, con has influenced Star Wars from the get-go, but continues to do so. And... I mean, anytime you're going to bring in Cad Bane, sign me up. See, I kind of look at it differently because it's like, I mean, I'm obviously familiar with him and loved him in the cartoon and stuff. But then I like in this one, in some ways, I was referring it more like 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 with wrestling, where it was like, you know, you've introduced this big bad guy, and you've not given him any real heat to kind of become from a from your from your casual audience. This guy comes in, shoots one person, then gets killed. He 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 was almost like degraded to just being. The hero, the villain of the episode, the week. He didn't. They, they, he needed to have survived, or they'd been built up at that point in live action. To kill him off the way they did, it's just he just was a jobber at that point. He's just been brought in. It, it really just didn't work for me because he was so great in the animated series, and then yeah, okay, he's on live screen, but it, it didn't give him any like. So any casual fan would have any clue that this guy was a threat. And he was killed off, you know, and he just, like I said, he, he just, yeah, it, it, it really kind of was like, oh, well, you've killed him off with, with barely, yeah, I mean, they can bring him in a new series in Obi-Wan and they can bring him in and it's like, you've brought him in and killed him off. So he's instantly weak from the get-go now in the casual audience's eyes. Before someone answers that, I'll just mention maybe a similarity would be how Kingpin showed up in Hawkeye and he didn't have the same level of threat and of, you know, intensity that we know from Daredevil. Like it, it felt like a, a cheap parlor trick or something versus this is, you know, the next chapter of this very significant villains, you know, uh, tenure in this, in this universe. So, um, but I don't know who wants Cad Bane thoughts. Uh, I don't, Gabriel, I see you nodding a lot. And I didn't really like him personally. Um, I've never liked Cad Bane in the comics. So, or in, in, in the, in the animated series, I'm sorry, because that's where he made his debut with the Clone Wars. Um, I, I, I kind of checked out at that point once he started to show up. 
Um, and I kind of had, had to skip over that saga with the clone with the, in the Clone Wars cart animated series and jump back in. I'm glad he got. It. I, I, I'm glad he had a comeuppance. Honestly, that's what got my attention when Bubba Fett made clear, um, "This is not Cat Bane's show. This is the Bubba Fett show." So yes, let me, so what, let me set the record straight. <laughs> what, I, what I think is important here, and there, there's a little nuance here, is that there. There's old footage from the Clone Wars that never got finished that shows a showdown between Cad Bane and a very young Boba Fett that the, the, the showdown kind of gets cut before it starts. So you don't know who's going to win that fight. And I know, you know, this doesn't speak so much to a casual audience, but that footage got premiered at Star Wars Celebration in 2015. And everybody was like, what what happens next what happens next and what they did was they finally showed us what happens next and it's it's a nuanced setup where you realize that cad bane is faster than boba fett in a gunfight cad bane's gonna win but in an actual fight that involves fisticuffs and physicality it's gonna be it's gonna be boba fett you know all day and twice on Sunday, in large part because of how he was trained by the Tuscan Raiders. Because when he eventually, you know, beats Cad Bane, he does it with a gaffy stick. See that that I love. I absolutely loved that they talked about um, in the Star Wars lore. They talked about how indigenous cultures, like um, the Tuscan Raiders because he chose to demonize them and honor them and learn from them, it came in handy when he was in a battle that he needed something beyond what stereotypical bounty hunters knew. And right. beyond the fact that Mandalorian warriors also trained extensively in hand-to-hand -hand combat, um, for Bubba to evolve, he had to continue learning different forms of hand-to-hand -hand combat instead of learning about how to do more gunslinging as stereotypical bounty hunters would have done. And I love that because I think it, I think that's where honestly, I have to keep telling people, um, you will appreciate these the Bubba Fett series more when you realize that they are also speaking, per Disney's heart for a diverse audience, they were speaking to different cultures that did not feel represented. Indigenous peoples who come from warrior cultures, not all, but many. Um, it spoke to them to see someone as prolific and prominent as Bubba Fett understand the, in many ways, the, the, the dynamic of being adopted and taken in and trained for survival you can't understand the significance unless you really dig in that and even with the even within that universe it's a powerful dynamic to see how Bubba Fett still is the number one of all time because of how he learns from anyone that he can learn from and even though he's a bounty hunter he's still an honorable bounty hunter he still has his own code but it's an honorable code so and Josh I know that you had wanted to ultimately kind of bring this back to Kenobi but so outside of what little we see of them in the films and then what's explored in mainly some of the old EU comics, the only time you really get to see a really solid look at Tuscan culture is the Kenobi novel by John Jackson Miller. And that was published in 2013, right around the time that Disney bought Lucasfilm, so it was one of the last things to be published under Lucas Books, and that my hope is as we get into kind of the actual Kenobi show, my hope is that that show 
on top of all the other things that we know are influencing it, like rebels and clone wars and all of that, my hope is that a lot of the influence comes from what we see from the Kenobi book, which was Ben Kenobi. You know, it, it opens with him delivering Luke, but the rest of it is him on Tatooine wrestling and struggling with what's happened to him and what's happened to Anakin and what's happening to the galaxy, but also interacting with the Tuscan culture and some of the, um, you know, underworld on Tatooine. And the way that book set things up was it was basically Clint Eastwood, man with no name with Ben Kenobi as the title character, which when you think about how that's set up, that sort of dynamic has also influenced the Mandalorian and where we are today with the book of Boba Fett. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, um, I, I am fascinated by where they're going to go in terms of pulling in the lore from Obi-Wan Kenobi. And we got just a few minutes here left. So, but in, so, cause we can't go too deep. It's all speculation at this point, there's going to be a second trailer that will come out and give us, I'm sure a lot more, but there is a key lore element here from the, you might call Filoni verse from those shows rebels, particularly that is, is played out in this. And you mentioned it earlier, Aaron, the, the Sith inquisitors, um, because in addition to the return of Darth Vader, um, which mm -hmm. is very significant. Hayden Christensen uh, reprising that role. We're going to see Sith Inquisitors in live action for the first time. And and some fans might be like, okay, what about the rule of two? You know, always a master and apprentice, you know, only two and no more there. What, uh, how does the Inquisitors fit into that, you know, Lucas's supposed rule of two that, that the Sith uh, had, you know, in the prequels? It's funny as well because I think like with my like with the Inquisitors, it's not just from the animated series, but also like from the video games, especially like Jedi Fallen Order. And there's so many aspects from that that are pulling into it, which I kind of definitely that was what pulled me in more. So was you know like um, I think the the base where they are is from the video game, you know, and they're really pulling in on that whole. And I generally you know you know I'm looking forward to the, the second Jedi Fallen Order game. But I thought that was quite interesting. Like they're pulling in from that lore as well, much more than just just from from the the Rebel series. I would even go further back than that, because even though the first time we actually saw these Inquisitors on screen was in Rebels, the idea of there being Sith Inquisitors goes all the way back to the Dark Empire comics from uh, Dark Horse in the '90s, and even further back to some of the West End kind of Star Wars RPG game manuals from even in like the 80s and into the 90s. So Sith Inquisitors are not, they seem new, but they're really not. And as far as the rule of two goes, I would simply say Palpatine is a character that we know is willing to cajole and manipulate and bend and break rules and you know, make things legal, as it were, as it suits him so that he can hang on to power. Because part of the Sith philosophy and the Sith code is that all that is, is all that is. There is nothing beyond this life. So anything you have to do in order to hang, hold on to what you have, you do. 
And I also, I was going to say as well, like with the Inquisitors, are always like that kind of weird thing. Like they're not, you know, they never come across fully as they're not full Sith. You know, they're just they're like super powered bounty hunter. You know, they're they're not in that same level as like like Darth Maul or um, Count Dooku or something like that. They they don't appear at that level. They're just there to hunt. That's they're pretty much you know just to, to fight the Jedi, and that's their so rather than being you know someone that can control i don't know they they always kind of that they, they don't feel like full sift to me they're like mm-hmm. like just like weapons really and like extra guards rather than yeah i don't know it's a bit of a novel if you're uh, a full sith you're gonna get the title darth none of these inquisitors do not even kylo ren has that title something i want to jump in real quick and say um this goes back to the extended lore of the uh, of the old universe mara jade was one of many, for those who don't know, who were called the Emperor's Hands. They were Force-sensitive. They had the potential to become Sith, but he always made certain that he kept them at a limited level. But he trained them to the max of where they could go. So they were very much trained in the fighting styles of the Sith, but they were not trained in all the lore of the Sith. And she, you know, as a as one of the Emperor's Hands, was trained to be an assassin within the assassin's guild. Mm-hmm. They also had Sith, um, not Sith warlocks, but Sith uh, who were... Uh, into the arcane, you know, arts and so forth. And then you also had those who, like Asan Ventress, you know, they were dark acolytes, you know, they were dark Jedi. They themselves didn't have the full scope, but they had enough to kind of, you know, they were clear on the dark side that they were, but they were not on the full scale. So I think it's interesting to see how they're going to explore this in the Bubba Fett series. Um, the differences within Sith culture as well as Jedi culture and understanding that there is a spectrum. I mean, even uh, Qui-Gon Jinn, there's, I don't want to bring this can of worms right now to open it up, but some have said that Qui-Gon Jinn has never really been a true Jedi. He's been a gray Jedi because he violated the code that his mentor, quite his mentor, uh, uh, Dooku, was uh, never fully Sith, but he did not adhere strictly to Jedi code. There was a level of how things went. Um, so, again, yeah, I just think out loud. I think that's what I'm looking forward to. Um, and by the way, I forgot to mention, I didn't mention it earlier, but I just want to bring this up really quickly. Um, when I mentioned indigenous perspectives earlier, one thing I think should be mentioned is that with the Tuscan Raiders, they're going to build upon that, I think, because they're actually more closely related to Bedouin people, Bedouin indigenous cultures, than North American indigenous cultures, even with the way they dress, with the facial covers that are similar to shawls or burkas in, in Near Eastern culture, Middle Eastern culture. Uh, I just want to throw that out there real quickly for accuracy because uh, many have said, well, I don't really feel a North American vibe with this, but for Bedouin cultures, others have said, yeah, that's pretty, it's pretty clear they're going for stereotypical um, presentations on desert peoples, nomadic peoples. And with Obi-Wan's movie, they're going to explore that more in depth on how that looks for those who live in the city as opposed to those who live in the desert. That's my vibe from the preview. On Tamara Morrison's not North American. Right. Yeah, as as Gabriel had pointed out for sure. It's funny because it's like obviously being the Brit on here, I didn't it's that venue that didn't really it, it's funny that I instantly just thought, you know, like you say, like like Middle East, North Africa. That was just like instantly where I might like, you know, Egypt kind of thing rather than like you say, like North America. And I didn't get put any connection to that at all. <laughs> it was it was all just like like Saudi Arabia, you know, that kind of area kind of thing of if it was on Earth kind of thing. Like um, yeah. Jordan kind of thing. And it is like you say if the disconnect from North America internationally probably a little bit different of how we looked at it. Yeah. And it's gonna be interesting to move with the, with the TV show too because we're still in the city 
and there was i remember seeing a couple times in the old trilogy there were tuscan raiders even in the city this they were jawas too um they tend to not be really included with other people they were always a bit distant but they were there and so i can't imagine going back to tatui and seeing none of the continuity continue they're just going to focus more so on the gritty undercurrent of the city the underworld where obi-wan had to survive when he came from the desert to town who knows what they may be bringing out even more yeah i'm excited the fact that they're going to go to a different planet i don't know for how mm. long that will be or for how many episodes of the six but i assume it's at least a couple uh, from what we're seeing in the trailer i mean this kind of hong kong type uh planet and environment and atmosphere that is very different than uh, than tatooine so because we spent a whole lot of time in on the in the dusty plains of Tatooine, whether it's Boba Fett or Mandalorian, etc. So I, it is going to be nice to see some new environments. But to um, too, right? How's that? Coruscant's going to be in the movie. I, think I don't. I, I mean, I think there's been rumors of that, um, but I don't know that they've confirmed it. Um, but also, you got to think doing things in a, like a desert scene is cheaper to make. That's true. <laughs> 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 it's got to be the way of looking at it. It's just, like, yeah, they definitely need to get out, get out of the desert they, on the next. They series. would never make a Star Wars film in the hood. I promise you that. I don't care how much Disney loves diversity. They would never make a Star Wars film in downtown Atlanta with Tyler Perry Studios. They would never do that. They could, but for the Hong Kong kind of feel, and, I, and again, when I heard that they were going to have a bit of a perspective from. The lower levels of Coruscant that we rarely see. It's gonna be I, I haven't seen what's down there, so it'll be interesting to see what they what they do with that. Well, and and this villain they're introducing, uh, who's beyond the Grand Inquisitor, which is obviously a character from Star Wars Rebels. Folks should mm -hmm. uh dive into that uh you know series of episodes and and get to understand who that character is because he is gonna be seen in live action, very much building on it would seem his uh his Star Wars Rebels. Appearance. I'm not sure actually canon wise if this is before or after that, Aaron. You this would probably... be before. Okay, this yeah. is before that. So you, so... you probably have oh, five to seven years before we see him in Rebels. Okay. I, but this other Inquisitor character, the third sister they're calling her, or Reva, uh, portrayed by Moses Ingram. Very interesting uh, to have uh, this kind of antagonist as well in the series. Um, I th it seems like there's going to be some great action uh, that's going on between, uh, you know, Obi-Wan and, 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 and her. So, uh, but kind of thoughts on anything else that stood out or, or even that character and who they're introducing there. Um, yeah. I mean, I, again, I think I'm going to pull that one, but that one again feels more of a pull in from the Jedi Fallen Order video game, which um, again had um, primarily a inquisitor, a, a female one. So I don't know if it's the same character. I think mean, there's been a bit of like Eminem or whatever it is. So for me, it's like, cool. Okay. We're basically getting maybe a story with that whole element and it should just be fun to see it in live action because it, it's getting it out there to the ca you know casual audience and introducing these ones. And this can be set up for multiple series for multiple then um, going forward. You can use them as the, the villain without using Darth Vader for multiple series then by setting these up properly as like the, you know, they need villains. They can't keep killing them off. So they're going to, you know, if we've got multiple series, we're going to need some future and Inquisitors are a great, great way of filling in and also maybe filling out a little bit when then when we get into um, maybe if there's some left for the like Ahsoka because she's going to need some people to fight with. <laughs> so it's gonna, You know, there's that whole aspect as well. It's going to have to be this is where they can set up all the other little villains and stuff for future series. I think one thing also to consider with everything, maybe this is a bit of a random thought, but for me personally, while I'm looking forward to the character that we've been discussing, part of me has had a bit of a caution. My only caution is having Star Wars fatigue. 
um, because while I want to see a cinematographic presentation of the the time where people had to survive the empire 50 plus years, I've heard from many that Disney, the bane that Disney had to deal with that they tried to, they, they tried to put all the money into the Star Wars, which is good, but they have to, they, they you really have to have to extend out how long you talk about this thing um for it to be legitimate and you have to really 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 keep it dark keep it gritty um otherwise you can kind of like you know disney ending this whole thing and because we know what's going to happen with obi-wan at the end but how can it engage people long term for years um if it's just like adding stuff in to make obi-wan's story all the more central where they have a continual series of obi-wan Here's what Obi-Wan did 20 years into the rule of the Empire. I'm just wondering, at what point are we going to realize Disney maybe, maybe try to pimp this out beyond its time? There has to be a good stop and begin. I also feel like it's they don't have the advantage with Marvel where they've got the different genres in the same way. Um, you know, and they can make different, you know, they can make a heist and they can do, you know, they're trying it with solo stuff, but I don't think it's working the same way because people want Star Wars to feel like Star Wars. Yeah. Um, Personally, I feel like this year, I, I actually feel like three or four seasons of shows are just too much. I, I feel like, um, I think like Bobber and Bobber, one series a year would be probably be enough. Um, getting four just is going to start to kind of wane on people. Um, I mean, two would be a two's fine, but I do feel like three, you know, if we get Andor as well coming and then we might get Mando season three. And then if you throw in the Bad Batch, and maybe another. It's, it's, to me, there is that element that they're going to risk burning, because it's this. It's not as they can't flesh out the same way that they can with Marvel. Yeah, I I will say I can tell Aaron you want to say something here, but I will yeah. say that I've heard from Kathleen Kennedy at least in an interview with with her regarding her saying, "Hey, this is a six episode series. It's one and done. Ewan McGregor is mm -hmm. not coming back to this role. There just isn't a purpose for it. We don't see that. So that's at least a positive sign that they're not going to maybe keep you know uh, you know." continuing with that particular character. But you're right, I think four, I mean, this is gonna be a huge, it's already, we've had Boba Fett already. We're gonna have Obi-Wan you know, very soon here. We're gonna have the Andor show, uh, which will, will give us more to talk about, and Bad Batch season two, just in this year, not to mention the five or so Marvel shows. So it's, yeah, um, it, it all, Star Wars, like you say, it's all space opera. It's all science fiction and in, in that same space, so. It's uh, it is hard to to know that that you can sustain that much that many Star Wars series going forward, and this obviously is going to be a limited series, not not another season of this. But um, wealthy thoughts. Just one of the things to keep in mind with all of this, not just Obi Wan, is you have a somewhat contained timeline, right? You only have nineteen years to play with between Revenge of the Sith and New Hope, and we've already started to play with that timeline and space on the edges with bad batch on one end rebels on the other um rogue one you know on that end so we actually know a lot already about what's going on in the galaxy prior to the opening crawl of new hope now that the space around obi-wan because of where it's placed you know nine to ten years kind of right in the middle of that of that part of the timeline, we don't know as much, and we're going to learn more. But we, but based on what we already know, we can assume a lot of things. And one of the things about Bad Batch that really does um, 
a good service for the story is you see the speed at which things are changing that they go from the TK stormtrooper, you know, from the clones to the TK stormtroopers almost seem not quite overnight, but almost seemingly overnight. And there's a, there's a speed to which not only the empire rises, but on the other end, when you get to Mando and Boba Fett, there's a speed to which they also fall. It's hmm. good. Random, random thought, by the way. I, I wish that the universe, I, I don't know what the rules will look like depending on the, the universe you're dealing with, but I do know and I do hope that um, they may consider doing a comic book crossover with Star Wars. I know for a fact, by the way, that with Star Trek, the X-Men were prominent in the comics. Uh, Captain John Luke Picard did work with uh, the X-Men at one part, at one part of um, the comic lore, and they almost had a Superman Star Wars comic team up. So just for ideas for Disney, I would say, Disney, please consider bringing in some, just going there and just making this thing even more crazy than the galaxy far away already is. But Wow. That would be wild. That would be wild. That when would you, be wild. When you talk about different corporate ownership, too, of Star Trek, you know, it being in the Paramount world and... Uh, you know, it does. Disney doesn't always play nice, unfortunately, with uh, <laughs> with other companies. Um, although I don't, they didn't, they I don't know what I don't know what fandom would do with the Star Trek Star Wars crossover. Like <laughs> that that might just short out a lot of brains. I mean, if, if if it came if Star Trek and Star Wars crossed over, I would be like, oh my god! It's 2022, y'all. It's time to dream big and dream different. You know, Disney. <laughs> Disney is going to own a church pretty soon. They already want to own DC. I'm predicting coming up soon. They might just take it there and say, look, we're going to make this work. But that's just my fandom geekdom coming out. I don't know what that would look like because it could be a hot train mess, but it happened. At least it's on record that they tried, you know. Well, Star Wars has a bright future, no question. Uh, the Force will always be with us under Disney's ownership. <laughs> no question of that. Uh, they want to keep this thing going. So, um, I don't know, closing thoughts before we uh, wrap this up. I know we're all looking forward to maybe that second trailer. And also, uh, maybe there are some you know episodes that people need to go check out from Rebels. And maybe even Boba Fett, give it a second try. I might do that, watch a few of those again. Uh, from what I've heard today, I think I've uh, I've gotten a little bit more insight and appreciation for it. But uh, thoughts, guys, to close us out? I'm ready for the May 25th. I mean, it's the going to be the 45th anniversary of New Hope, 45th anniversary of when we first saw Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, the more they lean into John Jackson Miller's novel, the happier I'll be. I'm, I'm just looking forward to just again. I think we've been in the like the Mandalorian zone for a few years now, so it'd be kind of nice just to, you know, be back into something you know like with the prequels or just doing something completely different with Obi Wan. Um, kind of in, you know, and we've got Darth Vader, so it's just kind of. And also, I I want the Empire around a bit. That's what I'm interested in of how, like of them being in charge and what happened because I feel like that's been one of the issues of of Mandalorian of not having the empire in that same way I'm, I'm looking forward to going back to the classic you know rebels versus uh empire for this series yeah i think for i think for me um i just again this is this is my geek my inner geek coming out but i really would hope um as much as the obi-wan preview was amazing and they've done a pretty amazing job expanding the lore between the empire's rise and um even post empire with the new star wars films that have come out 
they really I really hope they tap in at some point into the old republic. Um mm -hmm. showing the rise of the Sith and the Jedi and showing how dynamic that era was. That's never really been tackled on a cinematic level. Mm -hmm. It's my personal dream that someone they would do that because you could have years, far more than that, of storytelling that you know the fans know about because of how extensive it was. Yeah. Um, It'd also be nice to have something fresh, something brand new that like most people don't know about. You know, not everyone is like, well, oh yeah, I know that Luke. Oh yeah, you know, we've heard that, you know, everyone, like if you said it, you know, yeah, you might be able to have like a young, I don't know, Yoda or something, but in the High Republic, but generally, you know, just do something fresh. Just get away from the idea that we have to, we know where it's going to. I mean, I'd like actually, Go be a past Rise of Skywalker where we can just get into something fresh that we don't know where it's going rather than constantly doing prequels. At least if you do it after that, you could tell a whole story and there's, there's no, you know, there's no ending. Because I think that's the problem with the prequels is you've always, you know where it's going to and that takes away a lot of the fun. You know, if you take, if you go past Rise of Skywalker, you just give us something fresh. We won't know where it's going rather than always going, oh, well, we well, he's going to have to survive because he's in this movie and this movie and this movie. Go past it and give us some stories there. As long as it still feels like Star Wars. Because I, I think that's a concern that a lot of the fandom has, that if you try to do something new and something fresh, the question is always going to be, does this feel like Star Wars or not? Or, or does this feel like I, I understand Star Wars to be? That's the big question I think a lot of fandom wrestles with, with these different things. Yeah. And to me, like, we know that Dave Filoni tends to be kind of the carrier of the flame when it comes to the, the real, I don't know, the lore and understanding of it and bringing that in and, and getting Lucas's kind of ethos of what Star Wars is back on screen. And uh, so, I, you know, he's not listed as an executive producer on Obi-Wan Kenobi. That to me is like, okay, I hope that we're still going to get something that, that is as rich in the lore. And same with Andor. I don't know that he was involved in that show. So I'm just you know curious to see it. And then obviously we're going to have a whole crop of Favreau and Filoni shows that will come out, Ahsoka, et cetera, uh, that are going to be coming post this point. But yeah, I just it, it's a bit of a question mark if, uh, if we can have stuff that's going to feel like Star Wars um, here this year. And I, I, think, I think it will. We'll, we'll see. But uh, Roger, thanks for having us all. This has been a great conversation. <laughs> yeah, so just again, thank you very much for um, jumping in and doing um, this um, special episode. It's been great to kind of jump in and dive into a very different side of Star Wars from different angles, different um, perspectives, and have a bit of a deep dive ahead of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, as per usual, guys, um, you can go check us out over at whatsondisneyplus.com. You can find us on all the different social medias and subscribe and stuff. Um, and Aaron, Josh, and Gabriel, if you want to uh, maybe um, tell us where they can find you, that would be great. Um, so I'll start off with Aaron. Um, I would say uh, Instagram, uh, Aaron Welty, um, and then also on Facebook uh, as of right now. Yeah, cool. And Gabriel? Oh, and he's muted as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am not technologically I, I am not as technologically challenged as it may have seemed just now with pressing a button. But for those who may want to find me, yeah, hit me up on ggrace103 on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook, Gabriel Adam. Um, and of course, you know, I have uh, my website as well um, that you guys can get if you come talk to me. But yeah, that's what I'm at predominantly with the work I do. 
Yeah. Okay, cool. And Josh, where they can they find you? Uh, Twitter at Josh M. Shep is great. Uh, definitely find me on the Disney forums as well. I'm often there, Josh Shepard. So uh, yeah, appreciate all that goes on. What's on Disney Plus, and you know, uh, it's it's an exciting time for Star Wars. Yeah. And so on that note, may the force be with you. Live <laughs> <laughs> so right. <laughs> long and prosper. Nanu nanu. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Thank you very much for watching this video. Make sure you go check us out over at whatsondisneyplus.com. Like, follow, and subscribe. Also, a huge thank you to all of our supporters over on Patreon and also on our YouTube channel memberships. And I'll just see you guys in another video. Laters.